Well, I'm really excited to have you all here. I met uh, Bill uh, Young. Well, I met. I mean, I met as in our paths crossed. I've known Bill for more years than I can count, including from the beginning of this class. But Bill and I met up right over here uh, before class started, and he told me he'd been doing the math. And we're coming up on the 1,000th class that I've taught here. And that's uh, kind of, yeah, that's kind of bizarre. So I hope you're applauding for y'all who have managed to endure that. I mean, uh, uh, I've had the easy part. I just stand up here and talk. But it's uh, been a great honor. It's a great honor to be back here. If I were not here teaching today, uh, uh, our family with five kids, those of you who don't know, we do have five adult children at this point, and they are all over the globe, and we try to figure out how to spend as much time with them as we can. Becky's with with, uh, several up in Colorado right now, so she's not with us today. But I said, i got to get home. i got to teach. And uh, uh, last night was the first night in my bed in 18 nights, so it was really nice to be home. And I'll be hitting the road again, but I'll be flying back from Boston next Saturday night in time to teach next Sunday. So I do hope you'll be here Sunday. I'm coming back just to teach because I love to get a chance to visit with y'all about what we're about in this class. So with that, let's get back into our study of Paul. We're looking at Paul from a different angle in this class. Certainly a different angle than I've looked at him before. The angle is that of, as a trial lawyer, what would I have done to defend Paul if I had been hired to be his lawyer when he got arrested around 57 AD in Jerusalem, in the temple? And so we've looked at it from a number of different perspectives. I've talked about the interview of Paul, what I'd know about Paul, the research that I'd need done. I talked about the witnesses that I would likely call. I want to shift gears a little bit this morning. And I want to talk about the charges that were going to be brought against Paul. That's one of the most important parts of any criminal trial or any civil trial. What are the charges... What are the allegations brought against Paul? Now, in the 20th century, perhaps the most notable, significant trial that took place happened starting in the late 1940s in Nuremberg, Germany. They're called the Nuremberg Trials. These were the trials of the Nazi war criminals. And the trials themselves are very interesting because one of the key questions that had to be answered before the trials could even begin was this. What are the charges that are going to be brought against the uh, uh, arrested, for the, 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 the prisoners? And you may think, well, it's obvious. Uh, they exterminated the Jews or tried to. Uh, they, they uh, you know, put together these concentration camps, went after Jews and gypsies and homosexuals and, and uh, people w- that are, were deemed to be physically or mentally uh, 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 at some deficit to what they deemed to be proper. And, and so that's obvious, isn't it? No, it's not obvious. It's not obvious at all. Because in truth... The Germans didn't do anything that was illegal under German law. The Germans passed the laws that entitled them to do those things. 
And so when the world court decides, and there's no such thing as a world court, there was one formed for this, that they want to try to prosecute and execute the Nazi regime leadership that they had captured, the first question that had to be confronted is, what are the charges that we're going to bring? The, the defendants have a right to know what are we charging them with so that they can mount a defense. There were four main prosecutors at Nuremberg. The United States had one. We sent Justice Robert Jackson. Justice Robert Jackson was a U.S. Supreme Court justice who took a leave of absence to go be one of the chief prosecutors at Nuremberg. He was joined by the British representative, Lord Hartley Shawcross, who was a British judge. They were also joined by a Soviet military general, R.A. Rudinko. Sort of just sounds like a Russian general, doesn't it? General Rudinko. Sounds like that should be like in, you know, some movie, Bond movie or something. General Rudinko. Um, They had General Rudinko. And then the French ultimately had two because I think Professor de Mathon uh, 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 was only there for partial. But they started out with a law professor uh, 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 who was their representative. These are the four prosecutors. The four prosecutors met in England to devise up the charge sheet. And it wasn't done in a day. Wasn't done in a week. Wasn't done in a month. It took them six months to figure out what charges they were going to bring. Much to the frustration, I might add, of General Rodenko, who said, this is ridiculous. Um, he, he said, uh, I'm sorry, ridiculous. He said, in Russia, we have easy way to do this. We bring them in. We say, how do you plead? They say, guilty. We execute them. They say, not guilty. We say, we find you guilty. We execute them. It's easy. Five minutes a prisoner, we're done in an afternoon. Justice Jackson was a bit more concerned. And the more he dug into it, the more concerned he was. Because it was becoming apparent that we were going to have to, he was going to have to write laws that could be the charges for the bad conduct. But you're not supposed to be able to write a law today and hold someone accountable for breaking it before it was a law. If the speed limit outside the church is 35 when you're driving home and you're driving 35, if they vote tomorrow to change it to 20, they can't ticket you for going 35 today because it was legal when you drove it. You follow me? So he's really in a quandary there as they put together the Nuremberg charges. So they came up with a set of three legal scholars to this day are still a little bit, uh, I mean, this is not held up to be the highest level of jurisprudence. The first were crimes against peace. The idea was that you're not allowed to start a war of aggression without sufficient cause. But these 23 didn't do it. That would have been the decision of Hitler, and they were people who followed orders. So that was even in itself a dicey one. But that's one of the charges, uh, the, the sets of charges that were levied. A second set of charges were just war crimes. You're not allowed to, to uh, in war, uh, mistreat POWs. You're not allowed in war to uh, torture people you've captured. That's why, by the way, a lot of people are very concerned that 
that could apply to other folks today. Because we have people we've captured or detained who arguably we tortured. And so there's this big issue of have we violated those war crime laws that were drawn up after the fact of World War II, sort of. Or at least recognized after the fact. And the third were basic crimes against humanity. This was the idea that, look, everyone knows what you did is wrong even if it's not a crime to do it. So those were the charges, and, and ultimately uh, all but three of, of the initial 23 were convicted and either executed or given prison terms. But that is a monumental task in any trial, in any legal proceeding. Determine what the charges are so people know how to defend themselves in a court of justice. And if you're not going to do that, go ahead and just call it a kangaroo court or a pig circus where justice doesn't have a chance. But for justice to have a chance, you have to know what crimes you are being tried for. What are the charges? Make sense? So this is what I need to know for Paul. Now the Roman Empire was an interesting empire. They started out as the city of Rome with a bunch of farmers who just happened to be really good fighters. And so in the 500 B.C. range, they started fighting and taking over the areas around Rome, eventually taking over most of Italy, eventually taking over Sicily and things in the fights with Carthage, eventually taking over Macedonia and Greece. And this Roman Empire grows. The Romans as a group, though, loved the Greeks. They used the Greek language as much as the Latin language. The Latin gods were the Greek gods with Latin names. The Romans took the Latin, uh, uh, the Greek morals, much to the chagrin. The Greeks had very loose morals. The, the Romans took the Greek love of theater. The Romans took the Greek love of medicine, philosophy. All of these, they just mimicked the Greeks. You want to know one major area where Rome did not mimic the Greeks because they said, you don't do it right, we do? It's in law. It's in law. Romans were serious about their law. SPQR is a typical symbol for the Roman Empire within its legal structure. Senatus... Populus K Quay, sorry, I just went Spanish, my pronunciation. Populus Quay Romanus. The Senate and the people, the Senate and the people of Rome. They took it very seriously. And they had very elaborate legal procedures and structures. And the first legal procedure and structure during the time period of the Roman Empire when Paul was arrested had what's called the formula stage. And at the formula stage, both the prosecutor and the defendant would come before the official, generally in Rome it would have been a praetor, and they would go in front of the praetor, the official, and they would work through what are the charges. What does the prosecution have to prove to win? What does the defense need to prove to win? 
And those charges got set out before the trial itself. The charges must be clarified. That's not a new 21st century or 20th century concept. That's not new to American law. That's not new to British law. That was the Roman concept. And it's been around ever since in Western society. So with that, I need to know what the accusations are against Paul if I'm going to defend him. And I'm going to get those accusations from Acts 24, verses 1 through 9. Let's read the story. It's, it's a, a fascinating start to this. This is where the charges are assessed. This is that initial, probably. Now, now Paul's being tried not in the city of Rome. He's being tried out in what would be considered a province. And so sometimes the procedures were done a little bit differently because the provincial governors weren't simply full-time praetors, for lack of a better way of saying it. They also, as provincial governors, if you follow this stuff, and I have to say this because a lot of people watch this who, like, take these classes in, you know, some Cambridge law professor may be watching to see if Texas Tech taught me my law right. So I have to get it right, you know, for the Red Raider pride. But I will say this, that the Roman governors, like Felix that Paul's going to be tried in front of, had what was called imperium. That meant that they had the uh, dispensation to be able to write the laws, decide the laws, to be the judge, etc., etc. So here we've got it. Acts 24. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down. Why? Because not only does... Today, if you do something wrong, if you break the law... The DA, district attorney, will come after you. Unless it's a federal crime, then it's the U.S. attorney. Or they'll have an assistant DA or an assistant U.S. attorney. But there's a government prosecutor. Not so in the Roman times of Paul. The prosecutions were brought by the individuals who felt aggrieved by what you did. So in this case, it's the Jewish high priest and some elders who come in. Because you have to be present at the the drawing up of the formula, the charges. And so they come in, and they brought with them a spokesman, one Turtleus. He was really slow. <laughs> Turtleus is a Roman name. This was not a Jewish fellow in all likelihood. What the, what the, the chief priest, the high priest... And what the elders did, what the Jewish power structure did, is they hired a big gun to come in and try this case against Paul and to prosecute it. They got a pro. They got a Roman Latin pro. They laid before the governor, this is Governor Felix, their case against Paul. And when he'd been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, thank you, Richard. And this is, this is the lawyer. Boy, I love what I do for a living. And there are some great lawyers who love the Lord and who do a great job. But I can recognize lawyer tricks a mile away. These guys, they hadn't changed much. First thing he does is he tries to butter up the judge. I'm serious. This is, this is like, this is lawyer 101. Look, look at this. This is called sucking up to the judge. Just buttering up. That was a legal term, by the way, sucking up to the judge. Since through you, Governor Felix, since through you, 
Doesn't have anything to do with Rome. Doesn't have anything to do with anybody. It's all because of you. Since through you, we enjoy much peace. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Thank you for being the most wonderful, magnificent governor we could ever have. You've made this place a better place. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we found this man a plague. That in and of itself is not a crime, I might add. A plague who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. Now, this is an interesting note. Rioting in itself was not that big of a deal in the Roman Empire. As long as it didn't seem to disturb something significant, the Roman view was, hey, let the people riot. It's good for them. Gets out their aggression and their energy. As long as they go home at the end of the day and they're not too destructive on anything Roman, let them have a good time. However... It was a crime to stir up the riot, to be the inciter. So they're indicting Paul here for stirring up the riot. Oh, I might add this too. Luke writes with such precision here. As a lawyer and someone who reads and studies Roman history, historical law, he's writing with great precision in ways you don't understand if you don't study Roman law. And I say that because there are a lot of scholars who read Acts and they just dismiss it as some drivel written by some church historian in the second century who was just trying to put stuff together. No, this is dead on. This is eyewitness contemporary type accounting. He's accused of stirring up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, of being a ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. We stopped that before it went so far. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And then the Jews, who were the prosecutors, joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. The governor then gives Paul his chance to speak. Now, if we go back to the PowerPoint then. These are the charges that he's bringing. Basically, there are three. He charges Paul with stirring up riots around the world, number one. Number two, he charges Paul of being a ringleader of the Nazarenes. Whatever that may or may not mean, we'll discuss that in the next uh, class. And then number three, Paul tried to profane the temple. Now, I'm sure that the speech lasted longer than the 30 seconds it would take to read that. So what we're getting is a synopsis here. But the synopsis is still very accurate. And what I'd like to do in the 25, 26 minutes I've got left is look at the first charge today. That Paul was stirring up riots around the world. 
Now, if I know that's the charge that Paul's going to ultimately be tried upon, I've got to do my investigation and figure out, was Paul stirring up riots around the world? Well, the world back then, in their minds, would have been the Roman world. They wouldn't have cared about anything beyond that. And we've got a good idea of where Paul went and what Paul did. And yes, there were small skirmishes. They tried to stone Paul. Uh, they got upset in these small little towns of Lystra and Derby. But those are small, small, small little towns. They are communities. That's not even, that's not gonna catch the attention of this judge, of this governor. I think what they must have been arguing about was what happened with Paul at Ephesus. And the reason I think that is in part because there was a big riot at Ephesus. Ephesus was a major city within the Roman Empire. Certainly one the governor would have known of. And one of the charges that was assessed against Paul earlier was that an Paul was seen with an Ephesian at the temple, which means there was another Ephesian who would have seen Paul there with the Ephesian. It's the only way they would have known, most likely. So the Ephesus story had clearly made the rounds, and I want us to spend some time looking at Paul and the events that happened at Ephesus to see if Paul really stirred up riots. So here's the story. This is the map we were looking at last week. I've taken off the town's just immediately to the west, or to the left, as you're looking at the map, of Tarsus, where Paul did his missionary work on his first trip. On his second missionary journey, which we talked about briefly at the inception, Paul does not go to Ephesus initially. What Paul does is he goes um, uh, uh, ultimately from Jerusalem up to Antioch. He cuts over towards Tarsus and goes north of Ephesus after visiting the churches that he'd already set up in what we know as Galatia. So he goes north and he crosses over into Macedonia or northern Greece. And he starts the church at Philippi and at Thessalonica. And he comes down through Athens and ultimately goes to Corinth where he stays for a year and a half. Now this is important to me, because there have not been a bunch of riots in Corinth. Paul's able to stay there for a year and a half, and it's the first big, Philippi was a city of note, but it's the first big city of note for Paul, where he has stayed for a long period of time. Ultimately, Paul leaves Corinth. When Paul leaves Corinth, he sails the two to three days across through the islands over to Ephesus and puts in at the port of Ephesus. From Ephesus, he's trying to hustle back to Antioch and then down to Jerusalem. Ultimately, though, he just sails straight to Jerusalem. I say straight. They're sailing would typically hug the coast. They always wanted to keep land in sight. But, Within the framework of this, we read about something very unusual for Paul that's going to be relevant to this Ephesus story. It's in Acts 18, verses 20 through 21. This is Paul's first exposure to Ephesus. Acts 18, verses 20 and 21. He arrives in Ephesus in verse 19. He's left from uh, stayed many days longer, then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. 
at Chintry, he had his he had cut his hair. Now Chintry is um, all right. Corinth uh, is. Can we go back to the map for a minute on the PowerPoint? Corinth, right in there, has actually an east and a west harbor because it's that little spit of land that connects that whole bottom part of Greece to the top part. And so they had a harbor. In fact, the the land was so narrow there that a lot of ships would get pulled on logs across the land because that was safer and quicker than sailing all the way around the bottom of Greece to come up to the other harbor. But Chintry was the harbor on the eastern side facing Ephesus. So that's where, if we go back to the scripture, it's talking about at Chintry, Paul cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, so they sailed the two or three days to Ephesus, And Paul left them there. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. On taking leave of them, he said, I'll return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And as this recounts, sails all the way down to Caesarea, which is the harbor near Jerusalem. So... That's pretty bizarre, isn't it? Taking leave of them, he said, I'll return to you if God's will. I mean, that's, that in itself is kind of shocking for those of us who follow Paul. Jews saying, we'd like you to stay longer and teach us about Jesus. And Paul saying, no, I got to go. But I'll be back if God wills. This Paul is someone who saw his work not as his work. He saw it as God's work. And he trusted that God would take care of him. It's also apparent he left Priscilla and Aquila behind. He didn't leave them high and dry. So Paul goes on down. Now, why is he doing that? William Ramsey's got the best theory that I've seen. It makes a whole lot of sense. This is about 50, or this is 53 AD, most likely, based upon good, hard dating out of the book of Acts. And Passover that year would be March 22nd. So if Paul's trying to get back for Passover, it makes a lot of sense. Sailing is, is, was, was taboo. It was not done in the winter time. Sailing did not start until March the 5th of that year, most likely. There's the winter time and the, the seas are so rough. We were in Athens and we were going to try and boat over to, uh, uh, um, oh, where did Paul have his vision? Not Paul. John have his vision. This is jet lag. Thank you, Patmos. We're trying to boat from Athens over to Patmos. And the boat skipper says, I won't do that. This is at spring break. I won't do that. It's too treacherous. We have to wait until now the end of March before the seas calm down enough to go. That's with modern technology. So this, this is standard. So if Paul couldn't leave Chintry because the boats aren't going to leave until March the 5th, he's got to hustle to get all of the way back. And that's why he's busting a gut. He's trying to get back for Passover. Makes good sense. So he leaves Priscilla and Aquila behind and he goes home. Now, that is Paul's first encounter at Ephesus. His next encounter comes on his third missionary journey. And again, he's targeting with the idea that he'll do Corinth as well. But he takes off from Antioch goes through Tarsus, sees the churches he started in the first journey in Galatia, and then he goes down through the southern tip, and he takes the northern highway up through Ephesus. And he goes to Ephesus, and he stays there 
for a long, long time. While he stays in Ephesus, we read about it in Acts 19. And as much as I'd like to read through the whole chapter with you, we may have to skip some of it in the interest of time. Now, and it happened, whoops, let's get to the start of the chapter. While Apollos was at Corinth, so Apollos actually went to Ephesus, and then from Ephesus went on to Corinth. Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Something must have happened and it just didn't seem that they were plugged in. They said, no, we didn't even hear there is a Holy Spirit. He said, well, then into what baptism were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking in tongues, prophesying. There were about 12 of them. From there, Paul enters into the synagogue, and for three months he speaks boldly, reasoning and persuading about the kingdom of God. Well, let's pause for a moment and take a moment and understand the passage before. Apollos had been there. Apollos was from Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria, Egypt was famous for the Jews who saw the Old Testament in allegorical ways. A famous Jew of that time period was Philo of Alexandria, and he was a prolific writer, and so we read a lot about this. It is very likely, most likely, it's apparent actually from Scripture, that Apollos in Alexandria learned about Jesus. Of course, Alexandria is not that far from Jerusalem. Learned about John the Baptist, at least. Learned about and knew about Messiah coming and that John the Baptist was preaching about Messiah coming and he would have known scriptures that were messianic scriptures like Isaiah 53 and other passages and passages in the Psalms that talk about the Messiah coming as prophet, as priest, as king. And so John the Baptist comes and, and says, prepare the way of the Lord and, and here it is. And, and so Apollos gets that type of understanding and message. And that's why when he got to Ephesus and teaches the, apostles, uh, teaches the disciples there, these guys, they're learning about Messiah, but they have a very imperfect understanding. It's like they had the understanding before the resurrection of Jesus almost. And so that is why, certainly before Pentecost, that is why Aquila and Priscilla pulled Apollos aside this is in Acts that we don't have time to read right now. But they pulled him aside and taught him more correctly before they sent him on to Corinth to continue teaching. He was a powerful teacher. A lot of scholars, Martin Luther thinks he wrote the book of Hebrews. Because that speaks in a very allegorical way, the way uh, Alexandrians would. So anyway, I digress. So with that understanding, look back at the PowerPoint for a moment. And let's go back. Here is a picture of the ruins of Ephesus today, some of them. They're very extensive. It's an amazing place to go. And the ruins of Ephesus today, this is walking down one of the main streets. Ephesus, to put it into perspective on how could some of these people not even know about this, let me put it into to size. Ephesus was between 200,000 and 250,000 in size. That's huge. That's the size of Lubbock, Texas. 
the hub of the plains. That could be... I, I, I grew up in Lubbock. It's big enough to where everybody doesn't know everybody. You might know someone who knows someone else, but you, you know, you're only two steps removed. But, but it's very possible. I mean, Ephesus, if you go to the ruins there, it's amazing. You can even go, here is a picture of one of the public toilets that existed at the time of Paul. This was a public bathroom at the time of Paul. You can find uh, 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 all sorts of things if you go there. So here you've got this major city. It's also a place of central highways, the north-south and an east-west highway. Nexus, right there in Ephesus. It was a large port city at the time, though the port's since been silted in over the years. They also had a courier school in Ephesus where they taught people how to be mail couriers, for lack of a better term. How to take messages, how to take uh, 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 letters back and forth. It's a natural place where Paul's letters would have been sent from because there were professionals at taking them everywhere and people who already knew, you know, you say, well, what's involved in that? There's a lot involved in that. You have to understand, you didn't have GPS systems. You got to know how to get where you're going, how to, to, where the places are to stop, what the routes are that are safe routes. There's a whole lot involved in being a courier. And so there was a courier school there. Um, I'll, Come back to the next slide. Let's go back to the scripture. So Paul uh, uh, enters the synagogue for three months. He speaks boldly and uh, persuades them about the kingdom of God. But some became stubborn and continued in unbelief. And so they were speaking evil of the way before the congregation. And Paul just withdrew from them. He took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Now, if we this we got a little insight into Paul here. That's that's this is this is the kind of freebie you get when you come on a hot summer Sunday of Wimbledon finals. Okay? You deserve something extra for being here today. By the way, Roger Federer did win in three sets, if you're dying to know. Um not not that you know, I know, but uh uh here's a freebie. So we have different manuscripts of the book of Acts. And the manuscripts are in different families. And there's one that's called the Western Text. That's got some some important aspects to it. But we scholars are pretty certain, 99% certain, that a lot of the additions that are in the Western Text, because there are extra information in there, were probably added by the early church, not by the original author. But it still gives us insight into things. So the Western text, if we were reading that Greek text and using it for our translation, it would actually say that Paul reasoned daily in the hall of Tyrannus from the fifth to the tenth hour. Oops, fifth to tenth hour. That's added in. Now, their Greek hours started at 6 in the morning. So that means from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Got it? Now, that doesn't mean anything maybe to you and me. But it should. Because that was lunch and siesta time in the Mediterranean world. Businesses shut down. 
The hall of Tyrannus would not be used. Work ceased. Everybody ate lunch. Everybody took a rest during the heat of the day. And then they'd work again in the evening. And they'd work in the early morning. So that's what it tells you about Paul. Paul worked a full working day. Then he took that time that everybody else had for lunch and recharged snooze. And he used that as teaching time. Kind of a cool little thing that's there. Anyway, all right. Keep going. That's, I'm a Bible nerd, so just chalk that up. If you don't find that cool, that's okay. This continued for two years. So all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Because Ephesus is like Lubbock. It's the hub. It's the place where everything good came from. You got highways that go up to Amarillo, go down to Big Spring, Muleshoe, Shallow Water. All of those places come to Lubbock for their news. It's just like that back then. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. This is important because Ephesus was a center of magic and magic spells. Ephesia grammata uh, is the Greek words that were used. But these were the magic spells, the incantations. Paul didn't need any incantations. His worked by the power of Jesus. And a story is told of that. Now, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And here's the riot. Now, after these events, two years, over two years after Paul's been there, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, that's the, the Greece, think Greece, and go to Jerusalem saying, uh, southern Greece, as I have been there, I must also see Rome. He, having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Asia being Ephesus is the center of it. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, Artemis was a goddess, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know from this business we have our wealth. As you see and hear, not only in Ephesus, but as in almost all of Asia, this Paul fellow persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands aren't gods. We've been making these gods. He's convincing them these aren't gods. He's quit preaching and he's gone to meddling. He's now affecting our pocketbooks. Have you noticed the dip in God sales? If you're not selling as many God idols as you used to, it's this fellow's fault. There's danger not only that this trade of ours is going to come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. That she may be even deposed from her magnificent. She whom all Asia and the world worship. Well, when they hear this, they get ticked off and they're crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater. They drove Gaius or or Aristarchus, the Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. When Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, the people from Asia who were his friends, sent to him and urged him not to venture into the theater. 
Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them didn't even know why they would come together. But hey, there's a riot going on. There's a party. Let's go join it. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense. But they recognized he was a Jew. And for two hours, they all cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The town clerk quieted the crowd. He said, men of Ephesus, who is there that doesn't know this city is the great temple keeper of the temple of Artemis? Of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things can't be denied, you ought to be quiet and don't do anything rash. You've brought these men here. They're not sacrilegious. They're not blasphemers of our God. If Demetrius and the craftsmen have a complaint, the courts are open. There are pro-councils. Let them bring charges. But that's where it needs to be settled. Right now, we're in danger of being charged with rioting today. Not that it's that big of a deal, but it might be if it affects the temple. Since there's no cause we can give to justify this commotion. When he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now, how is that Paul's fault? How is Paul inciting the riot? Let's understand it just a little bit more. And I know we're short of time, but I think the context is so important. So if we go back to the pictures, first of all, there is a a play by Euripides. Uh, Euripides was a famous Greek playwright, uh, uh, not just um, a fellow who went to the laundromat one time and said, uh, you know, brought his toga to get it sewn up. The laundry man said, Euripides. And he said, yeah, Eumenides. Anyway, um, Euripides wrote a play. Eumenides is another Greek name. Euripides, Eumenides. Okay, Iphigenia among the Taurians. And here's what it basically is. It's a play that talked about a meteorite that fell from the sky. They didn't understand what a meteorite was. They thought the gods chunked something down. And it looked sort of like a statue. So they set it up at a temple and said, this must be from the goddess Artemis. The same thing happened near Ephesus. They had a meteorite that had fallen. They built a whole temple around it. We don't have the temple of Ephesus today or Artemis today. It's been destroyed. Okay? But here's what Antipater of Sidon said. I've set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon on which there's a road for chariots, the statue of Zeus by the Alphaeus, the hanging gardens, the colossus of the sun, the huge labor of the high pyramids and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, he's talking about the temple at Ephesus. Those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, lo, Apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on aught so grand. See, the temple was also the central bank, just like the temple in Jerusalem was, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem's area. So we have, for example, from Diachrysostom, a statement about the Ephesians. Large sums of money belonging to private citizens and deposited in the temple of Artemis. Not alone money of the Ephesians, but also of aliens and of persons from all parts of the world. In some cases of commonwealths and kings, money which all deposit there in order that it might be safe, since no one dared to violate that place. So this is a big deal. These charges are, I mean, and that, that Demetrius is able to stir up great anger. 
that Paul's going to bring the temple into disrepute. He's going to affect the banking, the community, the traffic, the tourism. He's going to tear up all of that stuff. And he gets everybody scared to death for their livelihood. I wish I had a picture of the temple. I don't. I do have a picture of the theater where Paul, or where they were hauled into. This is the theater in Ephesus. These are the ruins. That's a pretty big place. Here's a view from one of the early seats, but here's a view from a back seat. And that place is filled with people wanting to destroy him. So within the framework of that, this is important to me because if Paul had incited a riot in Ephesus, those people had every motive in the world to bring him to trial. They'd have done it there in Ephesus. Why, year later, is he being tried in Caesarea for a riot that was stirred up in Ephesus? If that's what Paul incited, bring the witnesses to the riot in Ephesus and put them on the stand. Not some high priest or someone from Jerusalem that's going to have heard from somebody who heard from somebody who heard from somebody who heard from somebody that maybe Paul was involved in starting a riot up in Ephesus. Give me a break. Give me a break. That's a bogus charge. There was no prosecution of it then by the people who would have prosecuted. Here are your points for home. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, Paul declined. Wow! That still just is a stunning verse. It's one of those I've circled in my Bible. I want to find and follow God's will in my life. I want to find and follow God's will in my life. I want to know and be confident that I'm walking the path God wants me to path walk. Because there are more good works than I've got time to do. And I want to make sure I do the ones he wants me to do. And then I let Priscilla and Aquila do the ones he wants them to do. You need to be doing the same. You need to tune into what God wants you to do with your life. Some people overload their lives and do so much that they don't have that, that they don't have time to do the things God wants them to do. I had to tell you, one of the things God wants you to do is take care of your family. One of the things God wants you to do is take care of your, your immediate circle. Live responsibly within your means. God doesn't just want everyone out knocking on a door. We've got a team we send to Sri Lanka. But we've got a class behind him who stands behind him in support and in prayer. And in that sense, we're doing a Sri Lanka trip, every one of us, whether we're going or not. You've got to tune in to what God wants. Next. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, Apollos, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I love that for two reasons. Number one, I love that they took the time to teach him. And number two, I love that he had the humility to learn. Instead of just saying, I already know it all. I'm already successful. Or I'll just go my own way. Or I'll start my church, you start yours. That's godliness. And final point for home. The clerk. There's a danger, the great temple of Artemis. Oh no, I mean this is Demetrius. There's a danger, the great temple of Artemis may be counted as nothing. Now, I can't show you the temple of Artemis, but in the 500s, the pillars of the temple of Artemis were grabbed and used to build a church in Constantinople, Istanbul, called Hagia Sophia. It's now a synagogue. Not a synagogue. It's a, a mosque. Excuse me. I'm going to get hate mail. Um, it's now a mosque. But we've got the pillars, some of the pillars from the original. Here's the mosque. It was the largest church at the time in the world. 
uh, and, and take away the minarets. And that's the Hagia Sophia Church. These are the columns. Now, if you're having trouble putting these into a size perspective, here's someone standing at the base looking up at one. Those were taken from the Temple of Artemis. Now, here's your point for home. You know, it's interesting to me that the Temple of Artemis fell. That, yes, the House of Artemis fell. And, yes, the Temple is counted as nothing. But from that have come salvages of the true faith and the biblical faith of God. That to this day, Christianity is all over our world. And there's not anything that's going to stand against it. God will get his mission done. And we work for God. Not out of duty. Not out of obligation but out of the privilege and honor of serving the King of Kings. And it's a great honor. Can I bless you before next week? Father, I ask your blessings on everyone that hears this message, but especially those, my brothers and sisters, friends, and, and, and new people I haven't even met that are here today. Lord, would you please touch their lives and touch their hearts. Reveal your will to them in their lives. Stir up with them the motivation to, to learn more of you, to, to renew their minds, but also their hearts and their energies. Give them, give them what it takes, Father, to serve you better, to, to love their family and their friends and their enemies better, to pray for those who, who they love, but pray for those whom, who, 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 with whom they, they don't. Would you bless them in that way and bring us back together next Sunday, Father, to study your word more. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. See you guys next Sunday. Thank you for being here.